Section 22 of Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Little Journeys to the Homes of Great Lovers by Albert Hubbard. Ferdinand LaSalle and Helene von Donegies, Part 1. A wise man has said that there is a difference between fact and truth. He has also told us that things may be true and still not be so. The truth as to the love story of Ferdinand LaSalle and Helene von Donegies can only be told by adhering strictly to the facts. Facts are not only stubborn things, but often very inconvenient. Yet in this instance, the simple facts fall easily into dramatic form, and the only way to tell the story seems to be to let it tell itself. Dramas are made up of incidents that have happened to somebody sometime, but in no instance that I ever heard of have all the situations pictured in a play happened to the persons who played the parts. The business of the playwright is selection and rejection, and usually the dramatic situations revealed have been culled from very many lives over a long course of years. Here the author need but reveal the tangled skein woven by fate, meddling parents, pride, prejudice, caprice, ambition, passion. In other words, it is human nature in a tornado. And human nature is a vagrant ship with a spurious chart, an uncertain compass, a drunken pilot, a mutinous crew, and a crazy captain. The moral seems to be that the tragedy of existence lies in interposing that newly discovered thing called intellect into the delicate affairs of life, instead of having faith in God and moving serenely with the eternal tide. Moses struck the rock, and the waters gushed forth. But if Moses had found a spring in the desert and then toiled mightily to smother it with a mountain of arid sand— I doubt me much whether the name of Moses would now live as one of the saviors of the world. Parties with an eczema for management would do well to butt their heads three times against the wall and take note that the wall falls not. Then and then only are they safe from megalocephalia. There are temptations in life that require all of one's will to succumb to, and he who resists not the current of his being nor attempts to dam the fountain of life for another, shall be crowned with bay and be fed on ambrosia in Elysium. Dramatis Personae Ferdinand LaSalle, read by Jim Locke Prince Wakawitza, read by Jasbys Herr von Donigus, read by Kesbeck Karl Marx, read by Kesbeck Herr Holthoff, read by Todd. Dr. Henle, read by Lynette Calkins. Jacques, read by Todd. Porters and Servants, read by Kevin S. Landlord, read by Lynette Calkins. Helene von Donegas, read by Matea Bracic. Hilda von Donegas, read by Sandra. Frau von Donningers, read by Tatiana Chichilla. Frau Holthoff, read by Jennifer. Maid, read by Jennifer. Narrator, read by Kristen Hand. Act One. Scene, 
parlors of Herr and Frau Holthoff at their home in Berlin. An informal conference of the leading members of the Allied Working Men's Clubs. Present, various ladies and gentlemen, some seated, others standing, talking. Enter Dr. Hainel. Hello, Comrade Hainle. I am very glad to see you here. Not more glad than I am to be here. They shake hands cordially all around. Herr Holthoff, to his wife. My dear, you see Dr. Hainle has come. I win my bet. I hope you two have not been gambling. Yes, Doctor, we made a bet, and I am delighted to lose. You mystify me. Well, the fact is that Madame had a dream in which you played a part. She thought you had been, uh, uh, what is that word, my dear? Expatriated. Yes, expatriated. Sent out of the country for the country's good. It would be a great compliment. Very true. You could then join our own Richard Wagner in Switzerland. Could I but write such songs as he does, I would relish the fate. But the people who sent him into exile never guessed that they were giving him the leisure to write immortal music. People who persecute other people never know what they do. It isn't so bad to be persecuted. But it is a terrible thing to persecute. It is often a good thing for the persecuted, provided he can spare the time. How does that strike you, Herr Marx? I fully agree in the sentiment. There seems to be an eternal spirit of wisdom that guides men and things, and this spirit cares only for the end. Nature's solicitude is for the race, not the individual. Exactly so. Get that in your forthcoming book, Brother Marx, and give credit to the madame. I surely will. Most of my original thoughts I get from friends. You may not be so grateful when the book is published. You mean I may sing the pilgrim's chorus with Richard across the border? Yes, the government is growing very sensitive which has nothing to do with the publication of Das Kapital, eh, Herr Marx? Not the slightest. The book will live, regardless of the fate of the author. You do not seem very sanguine of immediate success of the Working Men's Party. We will succeed when the ditches are full of our debt. Then progress can pass. And that time has not come. I hope we are great enough not to deceive ourselves. We work for truth. Whether this truth will be accepted by the many this year or next or the next century, we cannot say, but that should not deter us from our best endeavors. Helene von Donegies, golden-haired, enthusiastic, needlessly pink, and gorgeously twenty. Men fight for a thing and lose, and the men they fought fight for the same thing under another name and win. All turn and listen. Life is in the fight, not the achievement. Oh, I think it would be glorious to suffer, to be misunderstood and fail, and yet know in our hearts that we were right, absolutely right, and that the wisdom of the ages will endorse our acts and on the tombs of some of us carve the word saviour. Grand, magnificent. That sounds just like LaSalle. There, 
That is the third time I have been told I talk just like LaSalle, a person I have never seen. Then you have something to live for. Perhaps, but I echo no man. When one speaks from one's heart, it is not complimentary to have people suavely smile and say, Goethe, Voltaire, Shakespeare, Rousseau, La Salle. Just see the company in which she places our Ferdinand. Helene, wearily. Oh, I'm not trying to compliment La Salle. The fact is, I dislike the man. His literary style is explosive. About all he seems to do is to paraphrase dear Karl Marx. Besides, he is a Jew. Gently, I am a Jew. But you are different. La Salle is aggressive, pushing, grasping. He has ego plus and... With relaxing tension. All I want to say is that I am weary of being accused of quoting La Salle. That I do not know La Salle. And what is more, I... Oh, you'll talk differently when you see him. But surely you, too, do not make genius exempt from the moral code. Oh, someone has been telling you about Madame Hatzfeld. I know the undisputed facts. Which are that at 19 years of age, Ferdinand Lassalle became the legal counsel for Madame Hatzfeld, that he fought her case through the courts for nine years, that he lost three times and finally won and then became a member of the madame's household. If so, with madame's permission. Helene, sarcastically. Certainly. That thirty years difference in their ages ought to absolve him. To say nothing of the fee he received. The fee? One hundred thousand thalers. Capital. Also das Kapital. I have made a note of it. A lawyer gets a single fee of $100,000, this under the competitive system, a hundred years of labor for the average working man. A lawyer at 19, studying on one case, knowing its every aspect and phase, pursuing the case for nine years, and opposed by six of the ablest, oldest, and most influential legal lights in Germany, and gaining a complete victory. I have heard of successful authors of a single book, but I never before heard of a great lawyer with but one case. Oh, La Salle has had many cases offered him, but he refused them all so as to devote himself to the people versus entailed nobility. You mean entrenched alleged royalty? Yes, I accept the correction, and in this case he will win, just as he did the other. You had better say his body will go to fill up the sunken roadway. Good. That was your idea of success a few moments ago. I see. More of La Salle. Oh, you two were just made for each other. <laughs> you both have the fire, the dash, the enthusiasm, the personality, the beautiful unreasonableness, the... Go on. He is the greatest orator in Europe. And the handsomest man. Nonsense. You shall see. Shall I? You certainly shall. Indeed, La Salle may be here this evening. He spoke in Dresden last night and was to leave at once after the address. His train was due, let me see. 
half an hour ago. I told him if he came to drive straight here. Helene, slightly agitated. I must go. I promised Papa I would be home at ten. And your Papa would never allow you to stay out after ten, any more than he would forgive you if he knew you visited with people who harbored Ferdinand LaSalle. My father is a busy man, a monarchist, of course, and he has no time for the new thought. He leaves that to you? Yes, he indulges me. He says the new thought does him no harm and amuses me. Uh, see if my carriage is waiting, please. Thank you. Frau Holthoff starts to help Helene on with her wraps. Knocking is heard at the door. Herr Holthoff goes into the hall to answer knock. Herr Holthoff, outside. Well, well, Ferdinand I, Ferdinand himself. Commotion, all move toward the door. Enter Herr Holthoff with LaSalle. LaSalle is tall, slender, nervous, active, intelligent, commanding. All shake hands, and he and Karl Marx embrace and kiss each other on the cheek. Helene stares, slips down behind the sofa, and seated on an ottoman, reads intensely with her nose in a book. The rest talk and move toward the center of the stage, gathering around LaSalle, who affectionately half embraces all, with remarks from everybody, how well you look, and the news from Dresden, did the police molest you, was it a big audience, etc. LaSalle seats himself on sofa with back to Helene, who is immediately behind him. We will win when 51% of the voters declare themselves. You see, nature never intended that 90% of the people should slave for the other 10%. The world must see that we all should work, that to succeed we must work for each other. We have thought that educated men should not work and that men who work should not be educated. We have congested work and congested education and congested wealth. The good things of the world are for all, and if there were an even distribution, there would be no want, no wretchedness. The rich, for the most part, waste and destroy, and of course the many have to toil in order to make good this waste. When we can convince 51% of the people that righteousness is only a form of self-preservation, that mankind is an organism, and that we are all parts of the whole, the battle will be won. Rises and paces the floor, still talking. I spoke last night to 5,000 people, and the way they listened and applauded, and applauded and listened, revealed how hungry the people are for truth. The hope of the world lies in the middle class. The rich are as ignorant as the poverty-stricken. A way must be devised to reach the rich. I can do it. In action, idleness, that is the curse. Life is fluid and only running water is pure. Stagnation is death. Turbulent Rome was healthy, but quiescent Rome was soft, feverish, morbid, pathological. 
Now take Hamlet. What man ever had more opportunities? Heir to the throne, beauty, power, youth, intellect, all were his. What wrecked him? Why, inaction. He sat down to muse, instead of being up and doing. He wrangled, dawdled, dreamed, followed soothsayers, and consulted mediums, until his mind was mush. Helene, rising quickly. Mad from the beginning. LaSalle and the two men to whom he was talking jump, turn, stare. Mad from the beginning, I say. The two friends at once quit LaSalle and move off arm-in-arm talking, leaving LaSalle and Helene eyeing each other across the sofa. Her eyes flash defiance. He relaxes, smiles, paying no attention to her contradiction concerning Hamlet. He kneels on the sofa and leans toward her. Ah, this is how you look. This is you. Yes, yes, it is as I thought. It is all right. Frau Holthoff, bustling forward. Oh, I forgot you had not met. Allow me to introduce... LaSalle, waving the Frau away, walks around the sofa, taking Helene by the arm. What is the necessity of introducing us? People who know each other do not have to be introduced. You know who I am, and you are Brunhilde, the Red Fox. Leads her around and seats her on the sofa and takes his place beside her, with one arm along the back of the sofa. Helene leans toward him and flicks an imaginary particle of dust from his coat collar. You were talking about your success in Dresden. LaSalle proceeds to talk to her most earnestly. She listens, nods approval, sighs, and clasps her hands. The others in the room gather at opposite sides of the room and talk, but with eyes furtively turned now and then toward the couple who are lost to the world, interested but in each other, and the great themes they are discussing. I knew we must meet. Fate decreed it so. You are the goddess of the morning, and I am the sun god. You are sure, then, about your divinity? Yes, through a belief in yours. I knew I would meet you. I felt that I must in order to get you out of my mind. I am betrothed, you know. I know. To me, from the foundation of the world. I am betrothed to Prince Jan Korakoita. You never heard of him, of course. He is out of your class because he is good and gentle and kind and of noble blood. And you are a demagogue and a demigod and a Jew and a Mephisto. I told Janko I would not wed him until I saw you. He has been trying to meet you to introduce us. That you might be disillusioned. Precisely so. How interesting, and how superfluous in your fairy prince. He is an extraordinary man, for he said I should see you and him both, see you together, and take my choice. Good. He is a Christian, and does as he would be done by. I am a Christianized Jew, and I will be Jew, all Christendom. Your prince is a useless appendenda and I would kill him were it not that I am opposed to dueling. I fought one duel, or did not fight it, I should say. I faced my man, 
he fired and missed i threw my pistol into the bushes and held out my hand to the late enemy he reeled toward me and fell into my arms pierced by his emotions he is now my friend had i killed him the vexed question between us would still be unsettled i believe in brain not brawn soul not sense let us meet your prince and when he sees you and me together he will know we are one and dare not withhold his blessing which we do not need he shall be our page win people and use them i say use them you and i working together can win and use humanity for humanity's good we talk with the same phrases you say two wishes make a will so do i we read the same books are fed at the same springs our souls blend together great thoughts are children born of married minds my carriage is at the door i surely must go i'll order your coachman to go home we will walk strides to the door and gives the order and in an instant returns picks up helene's wraps and proceeds affectionately to help her on with overshoes cloak and hat the fact is that life lies in mutual service any other course is merely existence those who do most for others enjoy most well good night dear karl marx shakes hands and you dr hennel what would life be to me without you good night herr holtoff and dear frau holtoff kisses the frau's hand helene helps him on with overcoat and hands him his hat they disappear through the right entrance arm in arm faces turned toward each other talking earnestly as they go through the door Lasalle lifts his hat to the company and says, Good night, everybody. Those on the stage turn and stare at one another in amazement. Dr. Hanley breaks the silence with a laugh. <laughs> well, well, well. She is carried off on the back of a centaur. A whirlwind wooing. Affinities. Act Two. Scene. Hotel Veranda in the Swiss Mountains. Present, Herr Holthoff, Frau Holthoff, Dr. Hanley, LaSalle and Helene, seated or walking about and talking leisurely. Surroundings beautiful and an air of peace pervades the place. These early fall days are the finest of the year in the mountains. Yes, for then the guests have mostly gone just as the church is never quite so sacred as when the priest is not there you mean the priest and congregation certainly they go together a priest apart from his people is simply a man ferdinand loves the church you should say a church my lady fair yes a church this is the fourth time we have met two of the other times were in a church LaSalle, ecstatically. Yes, in the dim, cool, religious light of a church, vacant, save for us two, I should say, for us one. We just sat and said the lover's litany. Love like ours can never die. 
Well, love and religion are one at the last. They were one once, and neither will be right until they are one again. A creed is made up of ossified metaphors, lovers' metaphors. Good, and everyone can believe a creed if you allow him to place his own interpretation on it. That is what we will do in the cooperative commonwealth. Which reminds me that Bismarck, who loves you almost as well as we do, declares that you are a monarchist, not a socialist, the difference being that you believe in the house of La Salle and he in the house of Hohenzollern. Which means, I suppose, that I will be king of the cooperative commonwealth. You will be if I have my way. Heresy and sedition. The woman who loves a man confuses him with God and regards him as one divinely appointed to rule. I cannot deny it if I would. And yet tomorrow you and La Salle part. Only for a time. For how long? No man can say. That is why I've urged that we should be married here and now. A notary can be gotten from the village in an hour. You, dear comrades, shall be the witnesses. It is only my love that makes me hesitate. The future of Ferdinand Lasalle and the future of socialism must not be jeopardized. Jeopardized? Jeopardized by love? The world would regard a marriage here as an elopement. My father would be furious. Who are we that we should run away to wed as if I were a schoolgirl and Lasalle a grocer's clerk? Lasalle is the king of men. He convinces them by his logic, by his presence, by his enthusiasm. He has convinced you in any event. He can and will convince the world. I believe he will. And when he wins my parents, he will secure an influence that will help usher in the better day. Besides... Besides? <laughs> I am engaged to marry Prince Rakovica. LaSalle, smiling. True, I forgot. But when he sees the goddess of the dawn and the socialistic sun god together, he will give them his blessing and renounce all claims. Exactly so. Which is certainly better than to snip him off without first tying the ligature. This whole situation is really amusing when one takes a cool look at it. Here is Hélène, betrothed to Prince Rakowitza, who is intelligent, kind, amiable, good, unobjectionable. And because society demands that a girl shall marry somebody, she accepts the situation. And until La Salle, the vagrant planet, came shooting through space, this girl of aspiration and ambition would have actually wedded the unobjectionable man, and herself become unobjectionable, to please her unobjectionable parents. That is a plain judicial statement of the case, made by the wife of a fairly good man. Error, set in motion, continues indefinitely, all according to the physical law of inertia. The customs of society continue, and are always regarded by the many as perfect, in fact divine. This continues until someone called a demagogue and a fanatic suggests a change. 
this talk of change causes a little wobble in the velocity of the error but it still spins forward and crushes and mangles all who get in the way that is what you call orthodoxy the subjection of the many the men run over and mangled are spoken of as dangerous which reminds me that when people say a man is dangerous they simply mean that his ideas are new to them la salle seating himself at a table opposite helene you hear my goddess of the dawn helene that dangerous ideas are simply new ideas yes i heard it and i have said it because i have said it undoubtedly which is reason enough can you make your father believe that i intend to try and i expect to succeed all slip away and leave helene and la salle alone as the conversation grows earnest he holds her hands across the table just as the lovers do in a gibson picture and you still think this better than we should proclaim the republic to-morrow and have our dear friends go down and inform the world that we are man and wife listen the desire of my life is to be your wife no ceremony can make us more completely one than we are now my soul is intertwined with yours all that remains is how shall we announce the truth to the world shall we do it by the tongue of scandal that is not necessary dr henley can take you to call on my father i will be there we will meet incidentally you are irresistible to men as well as to women my father will study you you will allow him to talk you will agree with him after he has said all he has to say you will talk and he will gradually agree with you my parents will become accustomed to your presence they will see that you are a gentleman prince rakovica will be there and he will not have to be told the truth he will see it he will be obedient to my wishes he admires me and you i love you you love me the world seems tame i am simply yours i realize it and so like your little prince i am obedient an obedient rebel a rebel i say it but very gently i can win your parents and the prince quite as well if introduced to them as your husband as if we faced each other in their presence and pretended a nice word that pretended we had never met there i'm done i'm now your page your slave helene disturbed and slightly nettled then grant me a small favour even if it be the half of my kingdom let me see a picture of madame hatzfeld whom madame hatzfeld la salle colouring and confused oh surely i will i will find one for you and send it by mail perhaps you have one in your pocket-book oh that is so possibly i have takes pocket-book out of breast-pocket of his coat, fumbles and finds a small, square photograph, which he passes over to Helene, who studies his face, and then the photograph. Helene, looking a picture. She has intellect. La Salle, trying to laugh. She was born in 1808. I call her Grandma. Is she handsome? 
Oh, twenty years ago she was. Twenty years ago she was a woman in distress. Yes. And women in distress are very alluring to gallant and adventurous young men. It was twenty years ago, I say. And now you are, are friends. We are friends. Helene, archly. Shall I win her before we are married or after? After. As you say. We are both needlessly humble, I take it. Smiles and gently takes her hand. Helene smiles back. We understand each other. And to be understood is paradise. We have been in paradise eight days. Paradise. Paradise. And now we go out into the world. To meet at my father's house. At the day and hour next week that you shall name. Even so. They hold hands, look into each other's eyes wistfully and solemnly. Both rise and walk off the stage in opposite directions. LaSalle hesitates, stops, and looks back at her as if he expected she would turn and command him to go with her. She does not command him, and he goes off the stage alone, slowly and with a dejected air, which for him is unusual. End of section 22